Proverbs 30, verses 5 through 9, on page 700. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. What do you tend to pray for? When you pray, what do you tend to pray for? As you know, we've been going through this sermon series, Prayers That Guide Us. We've been looking through scripture at various prayers that we find throughout the Bible. We began in Ash Wednesday with Psalm 51, a beautiful prayer of confession that King David prays after he has committed adultery and murdered Uriah. He offers this wonderful prayer of confession. And then, of course, we went from looking at King David's prayer and we talked about the persistent prayer of Hannah and how she prayed desperately for a child. And then we looked at the prayer of Jonah, a prayer of thanksgiving that he prays in the belly of a fish. And then we looked at the prayer that Jesus prayed in the upper room for all of us who would believe, a prayer for unity. And then, of course, last week, uh, Will took us through the prayer that Esther had the people pray as they were fasting, praying for God's deliverance. When you pray, what do you tend to pray for? Do you pray for rain? We could use some rain. It smells like rain. I'm praying that God would bring some rain. When you pray, what do you tend to pray for? I know there's a lot of basketball fans that are praying pretty hard right now for their team, and I guess the Red Raiders prayed well. They, they made it to the Sweet 16. Uh, Longhorn's got to keep praying. Uh, they didn't make it this year. But what do you tend to pray for? Do you pray for your teams? Do you pray for wisdom? I know as a father and a husband and as a pastor, I'm often praying that God would give me wisdom. What do you tend to pray for? Last several weeks, I've been praying pretty hard for my dad. He's got cancer, prostate cancer. I've been praying for healing for him as he goes through radiation treatment and has chemo to follow. And there's a long list of folks in our church that I pray for every week who are struggling with cancer, praying for healing. When you pray, what do you tend to pray for? Pray for wisdom, pray for healing, pray for strength, pray for guidance. As I was doing a study on what people tend to pray for, I found this collection of children's prayers that I thought was pretty clever I'd like to share with you this morning. Little Lucy prays, Dear God, thanks for the little brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) I guess God didn't answer that prayer the way she wanted. Little Hannah prayed, Dear God, please change the taste of asparagus. It is gross. (laughs) I agree with that, Hannah. I don't like asparagus either. Finally, I read this little prayer from Bobby about a bicycle. It says, um, I asked God for a bicycle, but I know that God doesn't work that way, so I stole a bike and asked God for forgiveness. I don't think God works that way either, uh, Bobby. It's during the season of Lent, as we talk about prayers that guide us, as we look at the various prayers in Scripture to help guide us in our own prayer life today, it's important for us to look at the model prayer, the prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples during the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, that we often pray without thinking about. But I want us to take a little bit of time this morning to really think about what it is Jesus instructs us to pray for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. 
So I would encourage you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. It may be found on page 1030 of your Red Pew Bible. Matthew, chapter 6, beginning with verse 5. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join him as he pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you inspired Matthew to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today. We thank you, Lord, that as Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, people were listening and words were taken to heart, and and now we have the Lord's Prayer in written form. God, I pray that as we read it again this morning, that you would give us special insight, give us understanding, that we might be transformed at the reading and preaching of your Holy Word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter six, beginning with verse five. Listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues And at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I was doing research on the Lord's Prayer, Dale Bruner, a New Testament scholar and faithful Presbyterian, points out that the Lord's Prayer is located in the very nucleus, the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. And those of us who remember from high school biology, the nucleus is the very life center. It's the center of every cell where our DNA code exists. And how appropriate that the Lord's Prayer would be in the very center of the Sermon on the Mount, for it's the very center life of our relationship with God is is prayer. If we want to grow in our relationship with God, we've got to spend time praying. For it's in prayer that we dialogue with God, we share our concerns with God, and we hear from God as we are still and listen to him. That's why Jesus says in verse five of our text, and when you pray, he doesn't say if you choose to pray. The assumption is that as followers of Jesus, we will pray, we will turn to God with our concerns and as we pray, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, we can see that, well, that our focus should be on God first and foremost. For as we turn our hearts to God, we pray and we, we're reminded that God is our Father, 
our heavenly Father who will never leave us nor forsake us. Yes, we don't pray to impress others, but we pray in order to grow in our relationship with God. We, we pray to talk to God, not to be seen by others, as Jesus points out, but rather to be heard by God. Our Lord's Prayer offers a wonderful example of how we should pray. Notice that the first three petitions in the Lord's Prayer are all about God. We say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice the second person possessive pronoun, your. The first three petitions are all about God, that his name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray, are we focused on God first or do we tend to focus on our own wants and our own needs? I think Jesus is offering this sample prayer for us so that we might see the need to focus on God first. For as we turn our hearts and minds to God, our, our heavenly Father, we ask that his name would be hallowed or glorified. You know, we, we begin to find peace and comfort in knowing that God is God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we don't use the word hallowed very often. The best probably synonym for hallowed is to glorify or to lift up. Uh, Dale Bruner, the New Testament scholar, says it this way. The word most closely related to hallow is the more familiar glorify, which comes from the Hebrew root kavod, which originally means weighty, heavy, significant, important. God is heavy, significant. The great need of the world is to know the primal weightiness of God, to know God as God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, may your name be glorified, O God, so that everyone would know that you are God, that you are weighty, that you are important, that all might give praise and glory and honor to you. That's the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, that God might be glorified. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. What does it mean when we say your kingdom come exactly? We don't tend to think in the way of kingdoms very often. Again, Dale Bruner points out that when Jesus teaches his church to pray your kingdom come, he is teaching her to pray for the coming of the new heavens and the new earth that we read about in Revelation 21. For the end of this history and for the beginning of the new and thus for Jesus' own second coming that he talks about in Matthew 24. For we know that the kingdom of heaven will not be fully realized until Christ returns. And so we pray, O Lord, that your kingdom would come, that Jesus, that you would come back. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And we're also praying that the kingdom of God might be made known in us as we point to the reign of Christ and the way that we live and the way that we love others. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what is the will of of God exactly? Well, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount that the Lord's Prayer is ultimately given to us in, it seems to be that God's will is that the Sermon on the Mount would be done, that the teachings that Jesus has been giving us throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that that might be done in our lives, that we might be quick to forgive and slow to judge, that we might turn the other cheek, that we might pray for our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, That we might be cleansed from the inside out and have a pure heart and a pure mind focused on God and and God alone. That we might be salt and light to a dark and hurting world. That we might treat others the way we would like to be treated if we were them. 
is to pray that God's will would be done, is to pray that the Sermon on the Mount might be done in and through us. As a summary, Dale Bruner explains these first three petitions that are directed towards God have a Trinitarian theme. He writes, in a Trinitarian way, in the first three petitions, we ask for the hallowing of the name of God the Father, for the coming of the kingdom of God's Son, and for the doing of God's will by the power of His Spirit. For if we have any hope of living out the Sermon on the Mount, of of being people who are quick to forgive and and slow to judge, for people who have pure hearts and minds, we're going to need the Holy Spirit to guide us. By His power, we can be obedient. As we begin our prayer, as the Lord's Prayer tells us to, focused on God, our prayers will begin to transform us and transform our will as we focus on God's will for us and God's will for humanity. His God-focused prayers help us become more of who God wants us to be. As Eugene Peterson points out, we become who we are called to be by praying. We become who we are called to be by praying. This is we pray for the Lord's will, as we focus on hallowing and having his name glorified, as, as we pray for his kingdom to come, then our lives are ultimately transformed as we seek God's will first and foremost. We ask that God's name might be hallowed, made holy. We ask that God's kingdom would come or that Christ would return. We ask that God's will is done, that the Sermon on the Mount is done in our lives. Notice that we haven't said a thing about ourselves yet. But most of us, when we pray, we tend to center our prayers on what we need and what we want and what we desire, don't we? But Jesus reminds us in our text that God actually knows what we need before we ask him. Now, if God knows what we need before we ask him, then why bother praying, right? I mean, that that seems to be the logical conclusion. If God's omniscient and he knows everything, then why take the time telling God what it is we want? Well, God may know what we need before we ask him, but we don't necessarily know what we need. John Calvin, in his commenting on verse 8 of our text, explains it this way. Believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him, or of exciting him to do his duty, or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises. They may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom, and a word that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect both for themselves and for others all good things." We don't pray to wake God up and say, God, are you not paying attention? No, we know that God sees everything. God knows everything. We pray so that our souls and hearts and minds might be turned towards God, so that we might be transformed, so that we might grow in our relationship with God. Prayer is really not about getting what we want as much as it is trusting in God and growing in our relationship with God as we turn to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who created all of us, so that we might grow in that relationship, so that we might be comforted by his presence so that we might be held in the palm of his hand. Yes, the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer are all about God, what God wants for us. And then we begin to turn to us and our needs. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil Notice that the possessive pronoun has gone from your to our, our daily bread, our debts, our debtors. 
Lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's in these last petitions, Jesus offers some instruction on what we should pray for ourselves. These petitions prove to be all-encompassing in helping us pray for our most basic needs. Our need for provision in the present, pardon from the past, and protection in the future. Provision in the present, pardon from the past, and protection for the future. Provision in the present. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice that Jesus doesn't encourage us to pray for our weekly bread, our monthly bread, our annual bread, simply our daily bread. If you'll remember, when the people of Israel were living in the wilderness, God gave them just enough manna for the day so that they might trust God. In fact, he he told them not to store up more than they would need or it would rot. It was an exercise of faith to trust God for daily provision, to know that God will give us exactly what we need for the day. This is a provision, a prayer for provision just for today. Our proverb this morning uh, offers some special insight into this text. For as we read in Proverbs 30, uh, 7 to 9, two things I ask for you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needed for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. When we have too much, we can begin to trust and rely on our riches rather than trusting in God. Notice that in verse 11 of the Lord's Prayer, our opening request for ourselves is for our daily bread. Not for the food for the week or for the month or for the year, just for the day. We're asking for necessities, not luxuries. And of course, most of us, from a global perspective, we are, well, as Americans, we are, we are quite rich. We aren't really worried about whether or not we're going to have food to eat today. We're wondering what we might eat, not whether or not we will eat. Did you know that there are over 795 million people on the earth today who do not have enough food to eat? That's more than twice the population of the United States. More than twice the population of our country does not have enough food to eat each day. World hunger is clearly a global problem, but it's also a national problem because there's an estimated 41 million people in the United States alone that go hungry every day. That's more than the entire population of the state of Texas. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's a, it's a collective prayer for, for not only my food, but for all of our food. And so we should be moved to action to realize that, you know, if, if I have the food I need, what about the rest of my community? I love what Dale Bruner says about this. The fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer should stick in our throats when we pray by full Christians. For us who are not poor, the hour and the bread petition should be mainly a prayer for their bread, which in turn should be a go to all kinds of creative, social, political, and economic action. We might have the bread we need to eat, but what about our neighbor? Give us this bread, our daily bread, our daily bread. Does everybody have enough bread to eat in Amarillo? Yes, the Lord's Prayer should move us to action, social action, as we thank God for the food that we have and we recognize that some may be without Give us this day our daily bread. It's a prayer for provision in the present. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors as a prayer for pardon from the past. Every time I say the Lord's Prayer in an ecumenical context, it'll probably happen this Monday, Thursday, when we say it again, you'll have Church of Christ and Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians together, and we're like the only ones who say debts and debtors, right? 
I think we're the only ones who read Matthew. I think that's the deal. But anyway, everyone else says, you know, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass. And for a moment in those settings, we sound like we've all become Pentecostal because we can't understand what anybody's saying. It sounds like we're speaking in tongues. Just so you know, since we're the only ones who do it, we didn't make it up. We got it from Matthew. Okay, we can blame him. But in the first century, the rabbinic thinking was that every sin created a deposit of debt before God. The accumulation which formed a separating wall between the person and God, our demerits created a great debt between us and God. Sins were ultimately viewed as demerits that separated a person from God. And the corporate name for these separating demerits was debts. That's the Greek word here is debts. Jesus takes this well-known word and boldly tells us that we can ask God to forgive us for all of our debts, our collective demerits, all of them, which, which sounds crazy if you think about it. I mean, wh- wh- how could any one of us go to a bank and say, I know I still owe $140,000 on my mortgage, but I would just like you to forgive that. Could you forgive that, please? That would be great. None of us would imagine doing that. And yet Jesus invites us to ask for forgiveness of all of our debts, all of our demerits. And we know we're able to do that because Jesus went to the cross and paid the price for all of our debts together. For Jesus, who was without sin, became sin for us when he was cursed and hung on a tree, a cross, as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished and there's nothing we can do or add to this great sacrifice. We simply receive it as the free gift that it is through faith. As Jesus invites us to to ask God to forgive us our debts. But notice in verse 14 and 15 of our text, it's kind of, these are troubling verses for me personally. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This statement, taken out of context, seems to indicate that Well, God's forgiveness is conditional. If if I'm forgiving, then God's going to forgive me. But if I don't forgive others, then then God won't forgive me. Of course, if you look at this set of verses in the greater context of all that Jesus had to say, we can see that, that forgiveness always begins with God, doesn't it? God is the first one to forgive. And so we should forgive others as God has first forgiven us. I like the way John, John Stott explains it. God forgives only the penitent and that one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. If we are truly penitent, truly regretful for our sins and we ask God to forgive us, then once we receive that forgiveness, we can't help but be forgiving people, recognizing how much God has already forgiven us. But if we're not really penitent, if we're not really repentant, if we don't really regret the things that we've done, then, well, then we may not be willing to forgive others. But once you've been forgiven by God, you can't help but offer that forgiveness to others. There's a wonderful story in Matthew 18 that Jesus tells about the king who had a servant who owed him millions and millions of dollars, uh, lots of talents. And and there was no way this man in his lifetime could possibly repay this incredible debt that he owed. And so the man, the king, sees that there's no way to really recoup all of it. But he says, well, what I'll do is I'll sell this man and his family and everything for slavery. And maybe I can recoup part of my debt. Well, if you remember the story in Matthew 18, the man comes to the king and says, please forgive me. I promise you, I'll I'll pay you back everything. And the king, knowing that that's not possible, but being gracious and forgiving, forgives the man's debt completely. 
Well, then this servant, this servant sees a fellow servant who owes him just a few hundred dollars, an amount that could have been easily repaid. Well, rather than offering this man forgiveness, he, he strangles him and throws him into prison. And it's interesting in that text that in Matthew 18 that the man actually says word for word what the other servant had said to the king previously. He says, please forgive me and, and I, I promise you I'll pay you back everything. But he shows no mercy. When the king hears about this, he's irate. He says, how is it that I could forgive you this tremendous amount of debt and yet you could not forgive your fellow servant this small amount that was owed? Isn't that true for us? God has forgiven us a lifetime full of sin. Sins that we've committed and sins we have yet to commit. God is always forgiving to us. How can we not be forgiving to our fellow neighbors? Do we forgive seven times? No, seven times 70. Because God has forgiven us many more times than that. Yes, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When we've truly experienced the forgiveness and the grace of God, we can't help but offer that forgiveness to others, recognizing how much God has forgiven us. In these last three petitions, we pray for our present provision of daily bread. We pray for pardon of past sins. And finally, we pray for protection in the future from certain temptation. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This final petition of the Lord's Prayer highlights our humble need to have the Lord lead us away from future temptation. In fact, we specifically ask the Lord to deliver us from evil. The Greek word for deliver there can also be translated as rescue, to save, to literally snatch us away from evil. I remember when I lived in Dallas, we lived uh, on a street. We were the second house in from a very busy street called Odelia. And one day, Elizabeth, when she was about two years old as a toddler, started wandering down the sidewalk, and she was getting very close to that very busy street, and I, I didn't think she was going to stop, so I ran, and I snatched her away to protect her from certain danger. That's what we need God to do for us, because we are sinful, broken people who are prone to wander. We need God to snatch us away, to never lead us into any area where we might be tempted. And as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you also may be able to endure it. The Holy Spirit is our way of escape. By the Holy Spirit, we are given wisdom and truth, and by the Holy Spirit, we can find the the wisdom to avoid temptation, to resist the temptations of this world. It's the Holy Spirit is our way out. For as Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, now that Jesus has ascended to heaven, he has sent his Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us in all truth. The truth is we need the Holy Spirit to help lead us so we can make the right decisions and avoid the temptations of this world. Yes, ultimately, when we pray this prayer, this Lord's Prayer, we are recognizing our need for God's grace as we humbly admit our need for God's provision for the present for his pardon from the past and his protection in the future. We need to develop a regular habit of praying the Lord's Prayer. I know we do it on Sundays here together collectively, but we should pray the Lord's Prayer every day. In fact, there's only two more weeks until Easter. What if we committed that every day for the next two weeks we would pray the Lord's Prayer together? Because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after preaching wonderful message for all the people to hear, Jesus challenges everyone listening to him that day 
In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house in the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. That's how the Sermon on the Mount ends. That's it. No amen, no closing, go have peace. Just That's it. If you don't do what I say, you're like a man building his house on sand and when the storm comes, and storms will come for all of us, whether we're faithful or unfaithful, storms come for everyone. And when the storms come, if you haven't been doing what Jesus says, you will not be ready. It'll be like a house built on shifting sand. You will not be able to stand up to it. If we try to build our lives around anything other than Jesus, then when the layoff comes, or the dreaded diagnosis comes, or the loved one dies, we will feel overwhelmed because we've not been building our house on the rock of Christ Jesus. But if we hear the words of Jesus, and center our lives around doing what he tells us to do, like praying the Lord's Prayer, then we are building our lives on the solid rock of Jesus. And we'll be able to stand firm when the storms of life come. For every time we turn our hearts and minds to God and the Lord's Prayer and pray, we focus on the fact that God is our Father, a loving Father, and we want his name to be glorified. We want everyone to know the the weight of who he is. We ask that his kingdom will come that Christ will return, that make everything right, that his kingdom will be lived out in our lives, that the reign of Christ will be made known, that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And then we pray for what Jesus tells us we ought to pray for ourselves, for provision for the present, for, uh, for protection for the future, and that God would pardon us from the past. Yes, there's great power in praying the Lord's Prayer each and every day. I love the story that William Willimon, uh, the former chaplain at Duke University, and Stanley Harros, a theologian at Duke Divinity School, tell. In a prison camp in World War II on a cold, dark evening, after a series of beatings, after dozens of prisoners of war had been marched before the camp commander and interrogated for hours, when the prisoners were returned to their dark barracks, they were told to be quiet for the rest of the night. But someone, somewhere, began to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And another prisoner next to him heard, and he began to pray the Lord's Prayer. And another prisoner next to him heard him praying the Lord's Prayer. And before you knew it, this entire barrack was praying the Lord's Prayer. And then another barrack heard the, the people praying the Lord's Prayer. And so before you knew it, the entire prison of war camp was praying the Lord's Prayer with one unified voice as they came to the very end. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Hundreds of prisoners joining together with one resolute, amen, so be it. This is true. And then the camp was silent. But not before the tables had been turned that evening. And the prison guards were known that there is a king who is greater than, and more powerful than they will ever be. For they had cited, signaled, and stated a new world order. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Yes, there is great power. There's wonder-working power when the people of God come together and we pray as Jesus has taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 